0: This is Conquering Columbus.
1: Hey everybody, Andy here to give you a quick preview on this week's episode. During this week's interview, Mike and Josh are talking with Max Brickman, founder and managing director of Heartland Ventures. Heartland Ventures is a venture capital firm designed to connect more traditional Midwest companies with technology startups on the coast. Early on in the show, Mike and Josh asked Max about how he became an entrepreneur. Max was always entrepreneurial minded, for example, finding a business opportunity when it comes to making it more difficult to copy people's answers on tests.
2: Had an education startup in college. Uh, I don't know if you remember, like Scantron, you know, like filling the bubble, multiple choice tests. Yeah. So it's really easy to cheat off those. Mm-hmm. So I chemical engineered this paper that lets you write normally, but if you look at it from an angle, it's completely black. So you can't cheat. Uh, so I was able to, to kind of package that and license it to a company in
1: India and Dubai. Later, they discussed how Heartland Ventures got its start based on Max's networking efforts in South Bend.
2: And it really just started out of saying, hey, thousand employee manufacturing company. Do you want to meet five employee, you know, HR startup that's doing something interesting that addresses a problem that we chatted about over over a beer? And, and they did. And, and it ended up with the first one. It was a tech-enabled background screening company, ended up loving it and got to the point where we were were able to introduce this San Francisco background company to 20 customers in, in South Bend that all, you know, became users. And that's kind of where the model of, hey, how do we validate technology on the coast with Midwestern businesses? and then invest based off that.
1: They wrap up the show talking about some of the advantages of starting a technology business in the Midwest versus starting it on the coast. In the
2: Midwest, I think you see a lot of people who have industry expertise. Mm -hmm. You don't see that as much on the coast. And finding someone who who spent time in manufacturing or spent time in logistics and intimately knows the problem and has connections in that space and understands the problem, they, they experience it themselves and then go off to start something to address that problem. Is a really unique background, surprisingly, and, and a really effective background. Mm-hmm. They can they can recruit a team. They can speak the language. They 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 know what needs to be done. And you see that in the Midwest because a lot of this industry is is here. They have a proximity to it. And plus, once they do start the company, they're they're close by. They can they can hire strategic talent. They can have that quick feedback loop of having customers down the street. They can raise in the early days from strategic customers. They can have advisors. There's there's so many benefits to these kind of Midwestern tech hubs that we're seeing that I think is just going to
1: continue to play out. All right, that's it for this preview. Thanks so much for tuning in. Let's get on with the show.
0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. We are back from our little bit of a break. I think Josh and I took a break for the first time in six, seven years. I don't know. Josh, how long has it been?
3: I don't know, dude. It's a long time. Whatever 380 is divided by the amount of weeks in a year.
0: 52. I'm not good at that math, though. You're the math major. Nobody can outsmart you. Yeah, well, well, you're the math. Last major. time
3: we were on here, the Buckeyes still had a chance the
0: national championship. Okay, well, you now you just you go <laughs> straight for you go straight for the worst thing that happened in the time that we were off. Uh, yeah, well, you know what? We gave Georgia a good game. They looked pretty darn good against TCU, so I think uh, we could be happy here in Columbus. Well, on that happy note. We'll go ahead and introduce our guest for today. So joining us today is Max Brickman. And Max is the managing director of Heartland Ventures, which he founded in 2016. Heartland was formed to do what no other venture capital fund has done, which is connect established Midwest companies with coastal startups, giving business leaders a voice in the tech transformation happening in their industries and leveraging a network of strategic investors composed of private, often rural and mostly multi-generational business owners and operators. Max has effectively formed the largest network of mid-market tech buyers in the Midwest Heartland has over $100 million under management and has invested in 14 high-performing portfolio companies. Their first fund has been fully vested, and they are actively investing from a larger fund, too. We're excited to have Max join us today to talk about why he formed Heartland Ventures, the future of tech in the Midwest, and a whole lot more. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Max. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us on this Thursday afternoon. And uh, one of the first places we just like to start is give our guests a little background on yourself and kind of how you got to where you are today. So uh, for starting as far back, as, have you always lived in Columbus?
2: <laughs> no, so I'm, a, I'm actually from Wisconsin. Um, oh, okay. I actually born in Cincinnati, so kind of coming full circle, but, but grew up in Milwaukee. And and really got started in the entrepreneurial space early on. Um, I bought my first property when I was I was 14, uh rundown duplex in northern Wisconsin. Um, money that I I saved up from a, a landscaping company before that mm-hmm. and and was able to to fix it up and and rent it out and and buy a second property and a third. And
0: do you still own that first duplex?
2: I don't, I wish. Yeah. <laughs> uh Near uh, near Lambeau, actually. Oh, really? Near, yeah. In- so are you,
0: are you are you Cheesehead? Of course. Okay. So you must have been devastated. I was, that's yeah. Sweet. Gosh. Yeah. Oh, Worse than the Buckeyes, even, I think. But, okay, sorry. Although it continue. wasn't at the
2: stroke of midnight. So right, it, yeah,
0: that's true. Yeah, we didn't start the year off with it. But, yeah. Uh, okay, so sorry, continue.
2: No, no, so it started, you know, kind of early and, and was able to to grow that ultimately to about 450 units throughout high school and, and first year of college. Then kind of expanded that into a, a construction company. Uh, we ended up doing a lot of like the the big lots and Holiday Expresses around the Midwest. Uh, and was able to package that together and, and sell it when I was in, in college. Had a education startup in college. Uh, I don't know if you remember like Scantron, you know, like fill in the bubble, multiple choice yeah. tests. So it's really easy to cheat off those. Mm-hmm. So I chemical engineered this paper that lets you write normally. But if you look at it from an angle, it's completely black. So you can't cheat. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was able to, to kind of package that and license it to a company in India and Dubai. And then moved up to, to South Bend, Indiana. So that's where my now wife was going to grad school and didn't know anyone there, but but really wanted to make the most of the time there. And, and that's where I started Heartland.
0: So that's a ton of stuff to do, right? I mean, we get to college and you're already kind of packaging up and selling a company and all this stuff. I guess what drove you to do that, right? Like what, have you always just been kind of entrepreneurial minded or what really triggered that?
2: Honestly, I, I was never really super engaged with school and and it was something where that wasn't a great outlet for me. I didn't really see... The utility of it and, and the point of it, and when I started getting introduced to just entrepreneurship and the ability to build something on my own, everything started to click and make sense of of being able to apply it to something else. And so, as soon as I started, you know, the the landscaping company, mm-hmm. you know, my my schooling went up, everything else went up. I just I was able to to kind of see the the point of all of it, and and then I got hooked and the ability to build something and, and grow something and and just see the impact of your own efforts. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, you know, maybe in school, especially early in school, you don't really see the impact of the effort. You know, it, mm-hmm. you, you get a, a grade, the grade goes away at the end of the year. They kind of file it away and it doesn't really go anywhere. Right. Until you get to high school, then it matters. But, uh, you know, with with a business, everything matters. And mm-hmm. and it was to, the ability to, you know, have stakes, you know, high stakes at, yeah. at that age was was really motivating and really exciting.
3: And so when Heartland first came about, how did you go about starting? Like, what were, what were your first steps? And what was your idea with it?
2: Yeah, so I, I didn't really intend to start a fund. That really mm-hmm. wasn't the, what I set out to do initially, or I, I wanted to eventually, but I, I didn't think it would be that early, to be honest. I, I moved to South Bend and didn't know anybody there. You know, it's a city of a hundred thousand people. You know, it's not a tech hub by any means. I mean, there's a lot of businesses that are based there. You, you have Notre Dame, but Notre Dame's only like seven or 8,000 students. It's, it's really small and, and primarily undergrad. You know, when I got there, I didn't know anyone, so I started meeting whoever I could in the community. And the people that were doing interesting things in the community were not tech founders. I mean, now there, there are more of those there, but it was a lot of business owners, you know, fifth generation owners of, you know, manufacturing companies in the RV industry or, or you know, logistics companies that were doing really interesting things that had 1,000, 2,000 employees that were interested in seeing new technology. But because they were in Elkhart, Indiana, they didn't really have the same level level of access to it, mm-hmm. so I started meeting all these folks. They were all wanting more access to technology. Had great businesses. Had a ton of you know buying power, a ton of expertise. But there just seemed to be this clear gap between you know all of these businesses in, in South Bend and Elkhart and you know the the tech hubs that are around the country a lot of other friends that were starting HR technology companies in the coast and, you know, would have killed to get in touch with, you know, a th- an owner of a thousand employee manufacturing company in the Midwest with one decision maker, right? Because it's mm-hmm. a family owned business. And it really just started out of saying, hey, you know, thousand employee manufacturing company, do you want to meet five employee, you know, HR startup that's doing something interesting that addresses a problem that, you know, we mm-hmm. chatted about over over a beer. And mm-hmm. and they did. And, and it ended up with the first one. It was a tech-enabled background screening company. Ended up loving it and got to the point where we were were able to introduce this San Francisco background company to 20 customers in in South Bend that all, you know, became users. And that's kind of where the model of, hey, how do we validate technology on the coast with Midwestern businesses and then invest based off that.
0: Okay. And so, and what I'm trying to understand is the connection between the, because it sounds like that, you know, referral business, like kind of like, hey, we're connecting people, we're networking went like the fund part of this, right? And in investing based on that. So first off, do you raise the fund from the same folks that you're talking about, right? The business owners, the people that in the Midwest, and then do you, are you investing in the companies that you're referring here yep. or is, so help me explain, like, just help me understand that process.
2: Yeah, so when I got to South Bend, met all these companies, they became the users of the of the technologies that we're connecting with mm-hmm. on, on the coast or in tech hubs. They're now customers, but they also have huge balance sheets and have the ability to invest. Mm-hmm. So ended up raising a fund around them and just went to basically 30 of the largest businesses in in South Bend and say, hey, we have access to technology that can be helpful to your business. If you guys each put in, you know, half a million dollars in a, in a fund model, we'll continue to find these businesses and bring you the best of the best. We'll filter it down from, you know, a thousand that we'll look at down to the two or three that's relevant to you guys. It becomes an extension of their R&D arm. You know, it's strategic mm-hmm. for their core operating business. Plus, it becomes an investment for them to make. So we ended up raising 15 million from again, you know, 30 of those businesses and only invested in companies, the early stage technologies that we could bring to the thousand employee manufacturing business, say, Hey, is this something you guys would want to use? They want to become a hundred thousand dollar a year customer mm-hmm. and it de-risks it for us and it it provides an immediate markup on our end.
0: Yeah. It's, okay. So it makes complete sense to me now. So we're not only investing in the company, but and the benefit to there's double benefit to the investors as well, because we're getting a product, we're buying a product, we're paying into a product that we now own a piece of because we're part of the fund. So it kind of just full circle, right? Brings everyone together. Absolutely. And then from our end, in in terms of deal flow, you know, it's really competitive to get into a lot
2: of these, you know, Bay Area deals or or coastal deals. The ability to be differentiated and have sort of a unique investor base that can be strategic Mm -hmm. allows us to get into deals of, you know, why, if you're a competitive startup, why bring it to a you know, small Midwestern fund. And what we'd argue is, you know, because we can connect you to 30 of your largest potential customers in the region.
0: Right, makes complete sense. And so as you kind of went about that first fund, right, what did you guys learn about that model? And and was it always a success or were there challenges along the way?
2: Definitely challenges. Uh, I think it's when folks aren't invested, it's very easy for them to give an easy yes. What I mean by that is if you go to a manufacturing company and say, hey, do you want to use this product? It's really easy for them to say, yeah, that sounds great. You know, it solves all of our problems. If they don't actually become a customer, you then go and invest in this startup, take it to them again. And they say, oh, actually our priorities, priorities have changed. We don't actually need that anymore. Mm-hmm. But if they're invested in in the fund, they're, they have aligned incentives. You know, we're aligned in that they don't want to give us an empty yes. Mm-hmm. So that's where it really became important for us to to align with, you know, with who ultimately are our LPs. And that ended up leading to, you know, an investment or two that we made that, you know, we relied on feedback from, you know, uh, non LPs, not, non investors who are not aligned and gave us an empty yes. And they ended up backing out after we actually made the investment.
0: Yeah. Things change quick, right? Like I talk about this a lot. So Josh and I both are in sales and you know, if you let a deal sit for three months, all of a sudden they come back and they got something else top of mind, right. Or something changes. And you know, that makes a lot of sense to me. So
3: how, how did you evolve from that first $15 million investments? And then where do things escalate from there?
2: Yeah. Uh, it was kind of a proof of concept fund, right? I mean, it uh, it was 30 investors that took a risk on me and in and the model and, and, you know, my team. And we were able to prove ourselves by, you know, de-risking technologies we invested in to be able to sort of outperform the market, to be able to bring value to our LPs, not just by delivering returns, but mm-hmm. technology that can help their core business. And so then that's where we look to say, hey, is this a, a Northern Indiana thesis, right? Is this something that is only going to work here? Can we scale this out? Can we aggregate all of these middle market businesses from around the Midwest and put them into, you know, one network that can allow them, that can sort of give them a voice to, you know, speak to the types of technologies that they actually need instead of technology from the coast sort of being pushed at them. Can they collectively say, no, this is what we need. These are the problems that we're having. And so, you know, we looked at expansion cities after the first fund and looked at, you know, Nashville, Louisville, Ann Arbor, Pittsburgh, and 15 different cities and came to Columbus. Uh, not know visiting Columbus, mm-hmm. not knowing anyone here either, and and got connected to a couple folks in in the community, and very quickly saw that Columbus is is different, and it it, it is incredibly collaborative. It's incredibly welcoming to, to outsiders who are not from here, and it's growing really incredibly quickly. So it's exciting. It's going somewhere. So you know, a combination of that and my wife, who's a clinical psychologist, you know, mm-hmm. seeing that Nationwide Children's, you know, the, building the largest dedicated behavioral health center in the country. at the time that we were moving here was just the perfect combination. That's, that's how we ended up here.
0: Yeah. And I'm curious. So do you guys have an office in San Francisco, anything like that? Like, do you have an office in those spaces or you even, you guys just completely like, do you ever get into that space to kind of try and get on those deals or is it fully, Hey, we're bringing the deals here. We're bringing them to us. We, uh, we're out there all the time. For a long time, right.
2: I was out there every week. Yeah. I was out there every Thursday for a couple of years. Take mm-hmm. uh, took their 6 a.m. flight out and take the, the red right eye back that night for, mm-hmm. for a couple of years. And we have someone in New York. Uh, and then we have uh, folks in different cities in the Midwest. Uh, and they're just meeting with other VCs, with other investors on the coast saying, hey, w- what's going on on the coast that could be applicable to the Midwest? Our team in the Midwest is understanding, hey, what problems, what opportunities are the CEOs of large, multi-generational manufacturing companies, logistics companies seeing, and how do we connect the two?
3: And how big is the team today?
2: So we have nine people, a couple joining actually in the last couple of weeks. And then, so we we raised the second fund really just a couple months ago. Uh, we raised $52 million for the next fund, all from, same as as the first one, from from Strategics in the Midwest.
3: And that first that first one was fifteen million, you said. First
2: one was fifteen, and then fifty two, and then we have a, a bunch of SPVs, so like entities that we create to invest in in one company. Basically, mm-hmm. there's one company that's doing very well in our first fund, and it mat- and we exceed what we're able to do out of our out of our small fifteen million dollar fund. We'll basically put together a separate entity, go back to our investors, and say, Hey, do you guys want to put more into this one company? And that's how we got
0: up to the the higher AUM. the the Fed's been moving, right? And the increase in rates. Have you seen any like risk off from your LPs or has there been not too many challenges with that? Are you referring to LPs committing? Like incre- yeah, increasing interest rates. Has that had any impact on your guys' ability to raise that fund? Or did you see that, hey, this was still pretty easy. We got people more willing to put more cash in? I think the
2: model, you know, these companies, they're looking at it yes, from as it from an investment, just a financial investment, but they also need exposure to this type of technology. Uh, they, they need to know what's kind of going on out there. And and so there's a bit of strategic component to them investing. Mm-hmm. And I think that allowed us to kind of get past the the macro trends. Right. Um, that said, we we raised kind of right before this, okay. uh, everything that's going on. So we are definitely, definitely seeing changes with our portfolio companies and the companies we're investing in.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, but we were fortunate, you know, in a lot of ways that we raised really before this.
0: Yeah. So I'm curious then, how are you shifting your strategy with your portfolio companies based on Kind of the current economic headwinds. Yeah, I mean, at the beginning,
2: there there's a kind of a gap in deals being had for the first couple of months. I mean, there's that that bid ask spread where startups had grown accustomed to really yeah, high valuations. Like we
0: still want that 20x, you know, <laughs> exactly. Right.
2: And and you know, investors were, were not willing to do that, so deals weren't getting weren't being done. That's now uh, readjusted, and I think I think founders are are aware of the situation and and the, the expectation that this might be going on for a while. So valuations have come down, but I think the biggest Impact is the expectation investors have of founders during mm-hmm. the diligence process. Before, for a really competitive round, founders might only, it sounds bad to say, but there are many deals that were being done out there that very limited information was being shared. A little back of
0: the napkin math. <laughs>
2: yeah. And I think we're seeing the the uh, the impact of that now with with some of these companies, but you didn't need to show your work, if you will. Right. And, and now you do. And now diligence processes are becoming longer, more in depth. They're holding the the founders much more accountable, which I candidly think is better for everybody, including
0: Mm -hmm. the founder. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious, what would you, you know, you've obviously seen a lot of these companies and some succeed, some not, right? So from your perspective, what have you seen be kind of the biggest advice you'd give to a founder in this type of a market? What we're seeing
2: now, the founders that are struggling now, I think are the ones who weren't focused who are getting excited about too many monetization strategies and, and, you know, too many verticals, even if you raise a ton of money, it's it's easy to say, well, we can, we can explore four or five different options. You really need to to focus on the one that you believe in. It's too easy at that, at that stage to take your eye off the ball, Mm -hmm. especially if you find success in one and then you think you want to expand into two or three others, you really should have a good reason to, to deviate from, from what's working.
0: Yeah. It reminds me kind of what Matt Scantlin said to a similar question when we had him on the show. He mentioned, you know, hey, you got to find the people who truly value your product. Some people get, you know, yeah, they get value out of it, but they're not screaming happy and kind of jumping out of their chair when, yeah. they, when they get the result. You want to find the people who are so excited they're getting a 10x return on your product. They mm-hmm. never could think of living without it. Right. That's the market you want to focus on. So that, that makes a ton of sense to me. Absolutely. And that's what we kind of live
2: by. And. and the reason our investors are who they are, the reason that they're strategics is to be able to validate that. To say, if we introduce your product to your customer, are these customers going to be excited to use it? And it's really something that, you know, the founders that we get excited about are already doing that. And we're just validating it with our own mm-hmm. LPs who, who we feel are are a bit unbiased, but they're already doing that. They're already, you know, customers obsessed in, in a lot of different ways.
3: What is the time horizon for deploying the second fund? Have you guys put parameters around that?
2: Yeah, so it'll be about three years. Uh, two to three years. So we're really already about a year in. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll we'll deploy over the next one to two years. So it'll be an interesting vintage for, for you know, a lot of the funds that are starting to deploy now. You know, the valuations are low. We expect them to, we're optimistic that this is the bottom mm-hmm. uh, or that, that things will continue to improve as the market stabilizes. But yeah, we'll, we'll be, be deploying over the next year or
3: two. Do you guys have an average check size that you aim for inside of these different entities?
2: Yeah, we're typically between 500,000 and 3 million at kind of the the seed to, to a range. Mm-hmm. So we want to be able to make a sizable impact with the customer introductions that we're making. So if we introduce you to, you know, five or 10 really big corporates that can be strategic, we want that to really move the needle. So we don't want it to be a series C company where if we bring a million dollars in revenue, you know, it's a drop in the bucket. You know, we we want to be a, a strategic supporter at that or on those early days when those first few customers who are willing to work with you and willing to, you know, maybe be a little bit more flexible and, and put up with a few, you know, uh, you know, bumps in the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's what we want to be there for.
3: So, I mean, just assume you're going to deploy that money across 20 to 25 different organizations. How many did you end up raising from the second? I, I got to imagine at some point, those organizations start to become saturated with the amount of softwares and applications and technology they could take on. And then just maybe even a mental exhaustion from it. And then, so where do you go? It kind of, the model starts to, uh, become interesting at that point it
2: does and so we have we have 100 investors in the second fund and so all you know 30 from the first fund we were fortunate to you know they all came in for the second and and then we added another 60 plus in in ohio um so a lot of strategics in ohio that we're we're really fortunate to have that are you know really value add but you're right we don't want to oversaturate you can only go to the well so many times right and that's the case with anything with an advisor with you know with with a customer if you're asking for feedback you really want to make sure you're you're engaging them and you're utilizing them but you're not exhausting them and so we have a lot of internal conversations about you know if we're looking at a couple thousand technologies per year we really want to make it's very easy to to send 5 or 10 to a certain investor and say hey what do you think about these it just floods them so we we try to get it to the point where we're super excited about it we think there's potential here. We think it resonates with what we've already learned from those LPs, what they've told us in the past, because we've kept good notes, and, and it, it hits what we're thinking. We like the founder, we like the traction. You know, we, we've done all of that, and that becomes the last stage, so that we don't overdo it. And I, and I think that the startups that I work, that we work best with, are the ones who do that on their own, right? Mm-hmm. Who, are, who try to answer every question they can, and when they get to a point where they really need support, you know, they come to us for. For for feedback and guidance, but but knowing kind of when to ask for advice.
3: What about exits so far? Have you had any? Or are you still holding all the positions that you started with?
2: Uh, we've had a couple of exits. Uh, we had in the in kind of the early days a, a company called Spider Tech that was actually a, a non-emergency, reduced non-emergency nine one one calls for police departments, hmm. uh, and then actually a company in the Midwest called uh, Mamir that that sold to Hacker Rank. And then we've had a couple, you know, pretty significant markups that we've been, you know, fortunate about. A company called Workstream, this founder, Desmond Lim, who, really great founder, uh, came from Singapore, from a blue collar family. His dad was a truck driver. His mom was a dishwasher and, you know, worked in a restaurant growing up and came to the U.S. And he was like top of his class at Harvard and number of his class at MIT. And, you know, one of the first employees that we chat in the U.S. And went out to San Francisco and really wanted to address the hourly employee you know, market. That, that's what he grew up with. That's what his parents did. And he really wanted to address that. And so he started this company that helps match, you know, kind of a, a bit of a different way, you know, hourly employees. And so we talked to him, really loved, you know, just his vision, his passion. And it resonated with a lot of our, what we thought a lot of our LPs, a lot of our investors um, needed. And so we flew him out to South Bend and we connected him to 13 of our investors. I think it was 13 of our investors. And he left with 12 signed contracts mm-hmm. on that trip. And so, from our perspective, we're looking at this guy who, you know, whatever whatever that ratio is, I mean, just knocked it out of the park mm-hmm. in terms of his ability to explain his vision to his customer and close uh, on a very short trip uh, was amazing. And so we we ended up investing. And fast forward, he he raised his uh, his Series A from Founders Fund, uh, you know, Keith Rabois joined his board. His Series B from from Bond and Co. Two, you know, he's now raised a couple hundred, you know, well over a hundred million dollars from. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the some of the top funds, and you know, they they have a presence in South Bend, you know, with, with hiring in in the Midwest because they want to be close to their customers. But you know, it's something it's, I think it's a good example of you know one that is you know coastal technology or th- that can really benefit the Midwest and can
0: really benefit Midwestern industry. So let's talk about that a little bit as well. So what I'm curious about is right, like we're seeing more innovation centers come up in the Midwest, right? Columbus, Kansas City. We were talking about Pittsburgh, Indianapolis, right? We're talking about a bunch of cities that are really trying to push more of an innovation model and mindset and more tech and more companies to grow out of that right so what I'm curious about is what do you see that's different from those coastal cities in the Midwest and both ends right what are the pros and cons of Midwestern innovation centers versus what we see on the coasts in the Midwest I think you, you you see a lot of people who
2: are close who have industry expertise. Mm-hmm. You don't see that as much on the coast. And finding someone who, who spent time in manufacturing or spent time in logistics and intimately knows the problem and has connections in that space and understands the problem, they, they, they experience it themselves and then go off to start something to address that problem is a really unique background, surprisingly, and a really effective background. Mm-hmm. They can they can recruit a team. They can speak the language. They they, they know it needs to be done. And you see that in the Midwest because a lot of this industry is, is here. Mm-hmm. They have a proximity to it. And plus, once they do start the company, they're, they're close by. They can, they can hire strategic talent there. They can have that, that quick feedback loop of having customers down the street. They can raise in the early days from strategic customers. They you know, can have advisors. It, there's, there's so many benefits to these kind of Midwestern tech hubs that we're seeing that I think is just going to continue to play out.
0: And do you ever see valuations getting back to where they were, right? I mean, a lot of people calling it a bubble right the the private valuation market i got i mean the startup market right there was a startup bubble there was a lot of you know high really high valuations for some companies so how do you see that kind of progressing over the next 5 10 years they'll they'll go back up
2: but i i mean they they were high uh, for sure um but i, I don't I, I don't know if i'd say it was a true bubble mm-hmm. um there were just some over over eager investors who who drove up valuations um without you know maybe fully realizing what needed to happen for them to get a return.
0: Yeah, you might say it was a little frothy.
2: It was a little frothy, yeah. for sure. Fair, fair.
3: What about going back to those early days, like I don't wanna take us too far back in the story, but just just establishing the credibility when you're raising that first fund and going in front of those fifteen organizations. How did you go about establishing yourself as a trustworthy candidate for them to, to take a chance on and go down this model with you?
2: Yeah, it, it was hard in the early days. I'm, I'm not from South Bend. I didn't know anybody in South Bend when I moved there. And so these were all new new relationships. And so the ability to go from, it was hard. I mean, going from, you know, moving there, not knowing anyone to, you know, trying to get to the point where, you know, raising a fund is is difficult. But I really started off trying to just deliver value to them, you know, right off the bat to to show look, I'm not raising, I'm not asking for anything. I just want to understand your business and I want to be able to provide something that's a value for you and and that's a it's saying, hey, I'm looking at a couple hundred technologies and here's the one that I think really could be interesting for you. and I think that helped position myself, you know, within their mind maybe as a resource uh, in the technology space and that kind of anchored them to like that that being how I could be be helpful to them. So then when the fun concept started to to evolve and started to go to them for, for an ask, they already saw me as that sort of in their eyes and they saw how they weren't just betting on me, they were betting on the model. And that model was dependent on them being a customer, right? So it allowed them to have a say in it.
3: How, how long did the process take? I'm here, Like to build that trust and to, to change your position in their eyes?
2: It definitely helped have it being able to sort of get local advocates for me as well. You know, local advisors and local mentors who are able to make introductions kind of helps Carve out some time, carve off some time from from the process. You can kind of leverage others, you know, you know reputation locally, where you know, they do the diligence on you and they really get to know you, and then you know their their peers trust them for that. So it ended up being, you know, from from the beginning, of it, the first fund took you know eight to twelve months to raise.
3: And what made you feel confident enough that you had the skill set and the ability to evaluate all these different technologies that are out there, the thousands of them, and and identify the right candidates for these different organizations.
2: I mean, I think it it's less, they're, invest, they're banking on me and it's more, so th- a lot of the risk that exists with these early stage companies is lack of product market fit. And it's not me saying, I think this is going to be the next big thing. It's me just being the the facilitator to take them to all of their customers and validate that people actually want to use the product. So it's, they're not banking on me to be the best, you know, startup picker in the space. It's uh I think me being willing to understand that I'm, I'm not and relying on, on other experts who, who are
0: right. So it's not, it's not hard to convince them to invest in a company that they've already seen. And if they feel they know the market, Hey, this is valuable to us. It's gotta be valuable to other people like us. Absolutely. Right.
3: Did, did you, that's my last question. Did you make them the commitment that first fund that you would only deploy their capital into startups that they had tested inside of their organization decided to move forward with, or did you say, Hey, you're going to give me the capital. I'm going to bring startups to you, but I'm going to invest in whatever I want.
2: It, the overall, we would invest in in things that somebody would use, uh, mm-hmm. not necessarily them, but maybe one of their peers. Uh, you know, it's it's hard for everything we invest in to be applicable to, to everybody. Mm-hmm. But if they know that, you know, they're going to give us really good feedback and their team's going to give us really good feedback and we have 30 other companies that are going to be doing the same, they know that even if it's not relevant to them, that one of their friends down the street who's also going to be giving good feedback, you know, we can rely more heavily on that side. So we didn't have a, a a requirement that they had to be a user to to invest in the early days.
0: So we're coming up on uh, on time here. So I want to make sure that uh, we get we get you out of here on time because I know you got a call coming up. I'm sure, Josh does too. <laughs> so uh, this is, seems like a good place to kind of head towards some of our last questions of the show, Max. So first one is kind of what do you see long term for the fund? Where do you where do you want to take it? Other than hey, we want to keep growing, raise more funds, kind of continue the same business model. Do you have any other initiatives or anything you want to take on long term? Yeah, long term, we want to be able to really show that you know the midwest is
2: really where you should be if you're if you're starting a company that's targeting manufacturing or logistics you should be here mm-hmm. and so you know even if you're a company that's starting on the coast you should at least at the, in the early stages have operations here so you can have close ties to your customers and by sort of aggregating the businesses that are here and that's some a role that we can play you know we can make that transition happen a little bit more quickly
0: makes complete sense and and so the the next question i have for you is do you have any advice for our listeners out there a lot of them are founders considering to be founders entrepreneurs or just people that are really interested in the tech space and the startup space in Columbus. So any advice for people out there? I think it's been said before, but but get customer feedback
2: mm-hmm. and just try to be as unbiased as you possibly can. It's so easy to, you know, ask questions in a certain way that's only going to give you a positive answer. Mm-hmm. But really try to take a step back and and ask the questions in the way that, that allows the customer to, to be open and honest. Or give it to somebody else and have them do it. Um, I think the ability to to validate product market fit in the early days not only helps you understand if this is something you really should spend your time on, but it gives you data that can get others excited mm-hmm. to want to back you or work with you or, or invest in you.
0: Solid advice. Our last question on the show, Max, is uh, centered around the theme here on Conquering Columbus, which is live uncomfortably. So without telling you too much about why we chose that for a show about entrepreneurs, business leaders, others in Columbus, what do you think of when you hear the phrase, how does it apply to your life and career? I think in... in in, in a lot of ways, it's you know
2: starting before you're ready. I think as much as you can try to get validation from customers, there there is at some point a leap that you're going to need to take and, and you there's a point where you will have all the data that you can have. and I think don't get caught up in in needing to have hundred percent certainty before you go uh, into something, but get the information that you can easily access or or the things that can be deal breakers and then just be willing to to be uncomfortable with making that last jump to to go all in and commit.
0: Max. Great answer. Appreciate so much your time on the show here today and telling your story, talking about Heartland Ventures. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks everybody for tuning in. That was Max Brickman from Heartland Ventures. If you want to learn more about Heartland Ventures, go to heartlandvc.com. Fantastic. And uh, again, thanks so much for tuning in. You want to hear more interviews just like this one, go ahead and hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast app you are listening on. We release these every week on Monday and we appreciate all your support. We'll talk to you next week.